month, we have been looking at the beginning of the book of beginnings. That is the book of Genesis. That is what Genesis means. It's from a Greek word. It means beginnings. And so we have been talking about what this chapter, Genesis chapter 1, tells us about the nature and the character of God. Because it is God who is really at the center of its message. It is theocentric. It's God-centered. And Genesis 1 gives us revelations about God. We can know something about God through these words, about his character and his purpose for creation. As we've talked about, Genesis 1 gives us a revelation of God's divine aseity, his his self-existence, in the beginning, God. It gives us revelation of God's freedom and will and generosity. What does God do in the beginning? God creates. This act of creation is out of God's own desire to do so. It is is God's gift to us. We see revelation of God's sovereignty, that God is the only power in Genesis 1. God is alone, is above and beyond all creation. Gives us revelation of God's words, that his commands and his decrees are authoritative. And it gives us a pre-revelation of Christ as it connects with, with John's gospel. Well, last Sunday we looked a little more at the the literary masterpiece that Genesis 1 is. It has unique patterns to it and and a structure to it. And so we first talked about how each day in Genesis chapter 1 follows a general pattern. So the first thing that happens is God gives a command, you know, and God said, let there be light. There is this command and that comes to be. That, uh, that command comes into existence. And then God calls it good, and he saw that it was good. God gives it a purpose. He kind of describes why or the reasoning or the function for that creation. And then each day ends with a, a literary formula that concludes that act of creation. And it goes, there was evening and there was morning, the blank day, the first, the second, the third, so on. But we also saw that the structure of Genesis, you know, we have this linear uh, description of events. We can go through days one through six, but we also see that there's a parallel structure. There's something more going on to the text than just a list of things. Let's go to that next slide just for a recap. So what happens in Genesis chapter one is we have an introduction and then day one described in verses Three through five, and it describes God uh, creating light and darkness and separating light and darkness. Day two, skies and waters. He separates the waters from the waters and creates this expanse of sky. And then day three, dry land, and there's a, there's a second creative act. So in day three, twice it says, and God said, and then creation or an act of creation happens. So dry land the first time, vegetation the second time. Well, instead of making a a linear structure, if we parallel the days, if you look at day one and then across to day four, the the luminaries, what's that? That's kind of a weird word to use. But that's the sun, the stars, the moon, all the, the shining things in the sky, right? So if God creates light and darkness and separates day from night, God fills that with luminaries, with planets and stars and the sun and the moon and all that. On day two, God creates waters and sky. What fills the waters in the sky? It's birds and fish. And then day three, 
dry land and vegetation. Well, day six also has two creative acts. Twice it says, and God, and God created something. And it's the land animals which fill the dry land and eat the vegetation, and humans too. Well, we're going to pick up with, with that, with day 6B, as I call it, the second creative act. Um, but I hope that whenever you read Genesis 1 again in the future or think about it, you kinda, I hope you kind of can't help but to see this parallel structure because it adds a beauty and a depth to its meaning. We talked about how God is a God of beauty. God is a God of order, not chaos, not disorder. God is a God of goodness. And so in these days of creation, that's, it's describing God's creative and ordering acts to bring peace and harmony. But as we'll see, what happens is in our sin, we breed disorder and chaos. But in God's creation, in God's original creative act, things are brought into order. Things are brought to be at peace Things have a, a purity, not only in their, their material purity, but also in their purpose and in their function. There's a goodness about everything that God creates. So we can look around and we say that all of creation points us to the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God. And so ultimately what Genesis 1 is, it's a doxology. It's a praise to God. And that's where it points us. So before we, we jump into today's text, let us pray. God, you spoke and it came to be. Your sovereignty, your goodness, your generosity, your grace, your love, and your will is communicated to us throughout all of creation. We are without excuse. Not have, we don't have any reason not to give you thanks and praise. So may our hearts be filled with love for you. May our praise of your glory be ever on our lips. Amen. So last time we looked at the patterns that we see in Genesis 1. Today we're going to look at, at least today and next week, we're going to look at when there's a break in the pattern. Because we can set up a pattern, and that's important to notice, but it's also important to notice when there's a deviation from that pattern because that's also telling us something, and we see it. Uh, in the verses we'll read today. So I'm picking up at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. 
And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So there's some of the same patterns that we've seen in the previous days of creation in Genesis 1. But one thing that we notice about these verses, about this day 6 or this part 2 of day 6, is it feels a little different than the other days and how it describes them. The narrative really slows down. And it slows down by bringing in more detail. It doesn't, it doesn't have that same cadence that it had before. It really slows down and it brings in more detail. And it says more about this creation of humankind. Because it's drawing our attention to something that we kind of already know. Something unique. There's a greater importance in the text. This creation of humanity. So in simple language it says that you know we humans were we're kind of special. We are unique beings amongst all the other creatures in creation. And we kind of already know that, right? Or I think we do. I, I know we, we don't always act that way. We kind of act, you know, not too great. But there's a sense that we understand that there's something different about humanity, about ourselves, about the person sitting next to us, about the person driving down the road than there is about you know, the squirrels and the trees and the mountains and things like that. There's something unique. We have a unique level of consciousness and self-awareness. We have advanced language and intelligence and ingenuity. We can do things. We can make tools and use them. We have a depth of emotion and perception. We have a sense of virtue and civility and morality Sometimes, most of the time, hopefully. We are the most powerful creatures on the planet, not because of our our muscular strength, but because of our strength to rule, our ability to rule. And admittedly, of all these things, we humans, we can exploit all of these things in harmful ways. But for now, we're just talking about it in its original design and sense, in the positive sense. We are a unique species we are homo sapiens. You know what the word, those words mean, homo sapiens? Ever thought about it? So it's two Latin words. The word homo means human. That's, that's our species name. We are humans. But sapien, that's from the Latin that means knowledge or understanding. We are, we are humans of knowledge. That's what defines us. That's what our very species name speaks of us. We are creations. We are humans of knowledge. That's what sets us apart is our ability to think and to understand. Well, thinking of Genesis 1, it's easy to see as you're going through the days of creation. It gets to the creation of humanity and it's it's humans are the pinnacle of creation. Everything has been leading to this moment. But especially unique In Genesis 1, it says that we are beings that are created in the image and likeness of God. This creator. The one that it said, in the beginning, God. We are created in that image. We are created with responsibility. This passage we read, it talks about our responsibilities to care for and to nurture and to rule over creation. We are God's earthly regents and stewards of all the rest of creation. It's a place of high honor. And with that high honor comes a great responsibility. You know, not to quote from Spider-Man, but I will. 
that with great power comes great responsibility. We are to reflect the image of God to the world. That others, when they see our lives, they don't just see us. They see something beyond us and they see God and they glorify God. Jesus spoke about that. When they see your good deeds, God would be glorified. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a book called Creation and Fall. So he's focusing on Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And in his book, when he gets to this part about being created in the image of God, he writes about what he thinks that most represents. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? He writes, to say that in humankind, God creates God's own image on earth means that humankind is like the creator in that it is free. I'm going to pause there. He goes on to explain that a little more and to add to it, but I'm going to get to that in a moment. But this idea that we are created with a sense, uh, or we are created with freedom. And this reflects God. We've already talked about how God's act of creation, God freely chose to create because God is free. Creation itself is a free and outward act of God. And so when God creates humans in his own image and likeness, he does so extending to them that freedom of will. We have the freedom to choose this day who we will serve. In theology terms, we talk about the idea of free will. You may have heard that before. God is still sovereign. But in God's sovereignty, he has granted to us the freedom to trust in him or to trust in something less than him, something or someone else other than God. And it's in the exercising of that gift. It's in exercising the gift of our free will. That, that, it's that that can lead to either good things or bad things, blessings or curses. And the problem is, as we'll get to Adam and Eve Soon, they'll show us we often choose poorly. Instead of being God-centered, we become self-centered. We have a tendency to become the center of our own universe. When I was little, living up in Wichita Falls, Texas, it's not too far from Oklahoma, and there was always this commercial, and it was a car dealership commercial, of all things, and its tagline it was, Dan Mullins Nissan. The center of the universe. I didn't really mean to sing it for you this morning, but that's how it plays in my head. I was like, this car dealership is the center of the universe. And when you're little, you, you, you have a tendency to take everything more literally. And I'd be like, how is that the center of the universe? You know, I'm six years old just trying to contemplate that. and like, that doesn't make sense. And I don't really know why they use that. But... In Tulsa, Oklahoma, so a different town in Oklahoma, Oklahoma apparently has this thing about being the center of the universe. You can go there, and there is a pedestrian bridge, and there is a spot, a little circle marked on it, and they call that the center of the universe, because what happens if you're standing on that little spot and you say something, you can hear your echo louder than how you said it, for however that works. But anyone outside the circle, anyone right next to you doesn't hear the echo at all. And so they, they coined this the center of the universe. 
But really, I mean, for thousands of years, humans have assumed that our place right here on Earth is the center, was the center of the universe. It wasn't until Nicholas Copernic, uh, yeah, Copernicus in the 1500s, right around the, the time of the Protestant Reformation, just for, for comparative sake, it was him that first started to think, you know what? I think all of this is rotating around the sun. I don't know if we are the center of the universe here on Earth. I think the sun's the center of the universe, but it didn't really catch on so much until Galileo in the, in the 1600s. And he's studying Jupiter's moons, and he's, he's looking through his telescope, and he sees Jupiter, and he's watching these moons, and these moons just kind of go back and forth. They oscillate from one side of Jupiter to the other, and he realizes, wait, those moons are circling Jupiter. That's why they're acting like this. And then all of a sudden, he's like, whoa, we're not the center of the universe. The sun is the center of our solar system, but it wasn't until the 1900s, like not all that long ago that an American astronomer, Harlow Shapley, if I'm saying his name correctly, discovered that, you know what, it's not the solar system that's the center of our galaxy. We're actually tens of thousands of light years from the center of the galaxy. We're kind of on the edge of a, you know, we're just on this little dot on the edge of this spiral galaxy. And it wasn't until even a few years later that Edwin Hubble discovered that our galaxy It's just one in the midst of countless galaxies separated by billions of light years. You know, maybe we are the center of the universe, but probably not with all of that. We're not even close to the center of the universe, but yet our nature, we get so wrapped up in what happens right around us, the things that revolve around us in our little corner of our little universe that we become anthropocentric. That word means human-centered, self-centered, if we're talking, you know, personally. Meaning that we ourselves as humans, we view ourselves as the most important thing in the universe. Now, how does this happen? And we don't just wake, wake up one day saying, I'm the center of the universe, and just, you know, go about our day thinking that we are literally the center of the universe. This happens in our lives more subtly. On one of his uh, radio broadcasts a number of years ago, the late R.C. Sproul described how he was once invited to what was known to be a historically Christian college. And he was invited there to talk to the faculty about what makes a college particularly Christian or secular. Like what designates a college to be a Christian college and so he arrived at the campus, and he, he first kind of took a tour of the campus. They took him around, and he got to the, where the faculty department is and, the, and all the offices, and he was noticing the different uh, academic departments, the names of those departments listed on the doors as he was going along this hallway, and he reached a door that said the Department of Religion. He thought that was interesting. And so later that day, when he was asked to address the faculty, he stood up before them, and he, he said, I, I saw that you have a department of religion. And he asked them if it was always called the department of religion. And so he said a lot of the, the professors in the audience just kind of looked around with puzzled faces until one older faculty member spoke up and said, no, 
It used to be called the Department of Theology. So Dr. Sproul asked, when did they change the name? Again, no one seemed to know. No one seemed to even know that the change had happened except for this one uh, older professor. And he says, well, I think we changed the name about 25 years ago, but I'm not sure why. Maybe it was to make it easier for students to transfer credits to and from the university. Well, Dr. Sproul then went on to describe to the faculty how there is a significant difference between the study of theology and the study of religion. Because typically, the study of religion is in the College of Liberal Arts. It's under a broader category of anthropology or sociology, meaning that the study of religion is really a study of human cultures, of human practices, of human behaviors. It's human-centered, whereas the study of theology is the study of God, not the study of man. We are called to study theology, theology which is by its nature God-centered. Christian worship and Christian education is theocentric, not anthropocentric. It's not about us. It is about God. It is about Christ. So what we ought to do when we think about the universe and creation and humanity in our own lives, what we ought to do is study ourselves in light of our understanding of God, not the other way around. Not to study God in light of an understanding of ourselves. We study God. And from our study of God, we come to know more about our understanding of ourselves and humanity. So what happens when we try, though, to study God in light of our understanding of ourselves or our own humanity? Or put in another question, what is the risk involved when we begin with ourselves and then seek to determine who God is? What's the risk What happens when we do this is we create an idol, a God fashioned by us, a God that is in our image. John Calvin famously wrote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. An idol is something that we manage, that we manipulate, that we ultimately control. And that is, if we're honest, in our fallen nature, what we prefer. We prefer to be in control. We prefer to manage God in a way. We prefer to dictate to God how things should be. But to use Paul's words in Romans 1, we exchange, when we do that, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and created things. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the created things rather than than the creator. We are so tempted to use our freedom, this thing that, that, that makes us who we are, this, this thing that we have been given by God as we reflect his image and likeness, we use our freedom so often to live according to our own will and to satisfy our own desires or to prop ourselves up as kings and queens of our own realm of our own little universes rather than to use our freedom to freely 
and joyfully acknowledge God rightly as God, as creator, and to praise and glorify him with our lives. It's no wonder why the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself any carved image. Because the breaking of those two commandments is the very root of all sin. The breaking of those two commandments come from ultimately a fundamental failure to appropriately understand Genesis chapter 1. Because Genesis 1 clearly reveals to us that there is only God and beside him there is no other. He alone is to be worshipped and glorified. He is the creator of all things, humans included, me included, you included. And to worship anything less than the God of creation is to worship an idol. Genesis 1 tells us that we are created in the image of God, not the other way around. And we err grievously when we try to fashion God as we see fit, because that is not God. We rightly learn who we are from our understanding of God, which is a, I hope is what the study of Genesis 1 challenges us to do, is to look at what the text shows us, reveals to us about God And we sit in that. And we glorify God because of who God is. And then then be sent. And then see how we can reflect his goodness. His glory. We come to know the nature and character of God through his word. I want to briefly return to that quote that I mentioned by Dietrich Bonhoeffer from, from earlier. So he wrote... To say that in humankind God creates God's own image on earth means that humankind is like the creator in that it is free. Keeps going. That's the end of that sentence, but he's not done with his thought. To be sure, it, being humanity, is free only through God's creation, through the word of God. It is free for the worship of the creator. For in the language of the Bible, freedom is not something that people have for themselves, but something they have for others. This freedom that God gives us was not intended so that we could be selfish with it and become inward. But rather, representing the image of God means that in our freedom, we use that freedom to love God and to love and serve others. That is how we were designed, because that's what God does in creation. Creation is this gift. It is this outward flowing. If we are to reflect God, our lives should reflect that same sort of gift and outwardness toward others. That's what we should seek to conform our will to. Not that our will be done, but that God's will would be done. I want to conclude with the words from Psalm 8. We use Psalm 8, or at least part of it, in our call to worship this morning. But Psalm 8, it's a, it's a wonderful little psalm, and it reflects creation. It's thinking about creation as it's described in Genesis 1. And it speaks about the specific role of humans in creation. And what I want you to notice is its understanding of the relationship between God and human, between God and us. The human response that we see in Psalm 8 is one of, of awe. It's almost one of disbelief because of the special honor that God gives to humanity. 
So let's read these, look at these words from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm doesn't exalt humanity. It doesn't worship humanity. It's theocentric. It gives all glory and exaltation and worship to God and to God alone. And the last verse, or the first verse of Psalm 8, and the last verse say it all. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The only one worthy of our praise. So as his image on earth. Let us use our freedom to worship the Lord our God. Amen. Let us join together in prayer. Lord, we